Welcome to Legally Bond, a podcast presented by Bond Shannon and King. I'm your host, Kim Wolf Price. Today's episode is a recording of a guest lecture presented by Bond's Diversity Committee. Structural Racism in the Law is a discussion on legislative actions and systems which create racial inequality and suppression of Black and BIPOC communities in the United States. Our guest lecturer, Professor Paula Johnson, is a professor at Syracuse University College of Law and newly appointed to the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission. This commission was put in place to address issues surrounding litigants and employees of color in the New York State court system to ensure equitable justice. Besides teaching courses on race, justice, criminal procedure, and criminal law, Professor Johnson, along with Professor Janice McDonald, retired, co-founded and direct the Cold Case Justice Initiative at Syracuse University College of Law. You will hear more about CCGI, CCJI during the program and at the end. I could go on and on about Professor Johnson's many teaching accolades and publications, work with students, and community efforts, but I want you to get into the course of this conversation and hear the important information she has to say. Now, a recording by Professor Paula Johnson. Please note that the original presentation did start with a video. You may hear reference to it throughout the course of the conversation. Thank you very much, Kim. I'd like to thank the Bond, Shinnick and King law firm and particularly the diversity committee of Bond, Shinnick and King for this invitation to address everyone and for addressing the issues of institutional racism and structural bias. I want to address several issues that uh, hearken to those concerns about racial bias and implicit bias in our society. And I want to start by talking about an event that happened over just 100 years ago. And that is the Tulsa race riots that happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. And I start with this example because the Tulsa race riots really do exemplify all of the issues that are pertinent to this discussion and the concerns that we have about institutional bias within our society and within the law. Having to do, for instance, with race, having to do with class, having to do with segregation and redlining, having to do with discriminatory policing, having to do with voting rights, the lack of recognition, the lack of educational awareness about these events in our history, and the lack of redress. And so I want to use the Tulsa race riots as one of the examples that exemplifies these concerns. It happened in 1921 when a young African-American shoe shiner named Richard Rowland was accused of assaulting a young white woman in a building in downtown Tulsa. The next day, when the Tulsa newspaper printed this accusation that he had tried to sexually assault this young woman, then a lynching was planned for the following evening. And so there were mobs of whites who attacked the Black residents in the African-American neighborhood in Tulsa. And so almost 
all of the black neighborhood, the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma was burned to the ground. Now this was a segregated uh, part of the city so that Tulsa was segregated like so many other parts of the country, which meant that almost all of the black residents lost not only their homes, but also their businesses, their churches, and their livelihoods. Their losses were estimated in today's dollars to be over $30 million. What happened in the aftermath of the Tulsa riots was that the police did not protect the African-American residents of Tulsa. And there was a grand jury that ultimately was convened, but there were no charges against the attempted lynching of Mr. Rowland. But four of the uh, white mobsters who had uh, committed this violence against the Black residents and of their neighborhood, none of them were brought to justice for those actions. And moreover, there were no reparations for the victims of those harms, of the violence, and of the damages that happened in that community. Indeed, the Tulsa race riots were something that very little attention had been paid to since its occurrence. It's not typically mentioned in education books, and few people know about it, but for the fact that many of the descendants have continued to press for compensation and reparations for what happened to their community. So the Tulsa case was not unique. Again, it raises the issues of racial segregation and what that meant in terms of Black citizens being able to enjoy the full participation in U.S. society. There was aggressive and excessive policing that was directed for the uh, large part uh, at the Black community members who were victimized by this violence to their property and to others who were harmed as a result of those acts. And it also shows that as a result of those occurrences that the matter of not only uh, fair policing, but also of reparations is something that is very important to us in today's society as well. So among the images that you saw in the video, for instance, included the depictions of several African-Americans who have been victimized by police violence, those who were unarmed and found themselves to perish at the hands of police encounters. These events have been a part of American history from the beginning since police forces began, starting as entities in order to manage uh, the ways in which you know, uh, enslaved people were to be contained within U.S. society. And so we see that in terms of the disproportionate impact and effects of the way that policing occur in the United States, that Black and brown people continue to bear the brunt of that excessive force. As we look at the evidence of police violence in the United States, then we have to come to the conclusion that something very fundamentally has to change with respect to the way in 
which we not only envision policing and the role of police in this society, but also the way in which law enforcement carries out the expectations and their duties. The motto of police is that it, they are to protect and to serve. But what we find in so many instances instead is that there is an aggressive approach that often is lethal in the end when there are encounters with Black and brown people. We are all familiar with the death of George Floyd, for instance, and how the police very nonchalantly took the life of George Floyd while he was on the ground in Minneapolis. Now, very often when I discuss cases such as George Floyd and the George Floyd case in particular with my students, I often ask them, what is the most disturbing part of what you witnessed um, when you look at the video of that encounter? And that is after the students, you know, have uh, said that indeed, you know, that was a very disturbing event for them to watch. But I think it's very important for us to put words to exactly what about that was as disturbing as it was, as we saw the life seep out of George Floyd at the hands of the police on that day. And one of the things that the students will typically say, and many people will typically say, is that the officer had his foot on George Floyd's neck while he was on the ground, and that we saw that he was in a prone position, he was in a vulnerable position. And sometimes people will also recall the fact that George Floyd called out for his mother while he was on the ground and in this very difficult situation where we saw that his life was uh, compromised as a result. And so we look at that in terms of the state action that took place, law enforcement as representatives of the state uh, committing that action in taking Mr. Floyd's life. But one of the things that I also like to impress upon the students, and even as we are talking about that event, is that all of those things are true. It is, it was state action in uh, embodied by the police officers um, who took this aggressive action and the others who stood by and did not provide any aid to Mr. Floyd. It also is true that Mr. Floyd, very such a way that as he was on the ground and unable to get any relief and called out for his mother, and that is something that was heart-wrenching as we viewed it. But one of the things that I like to suggest also that is epitomized by the George Floyd incident is the very nonchalant, carefree, unconcerned way in which that officer had his foot on Mr. Floyd's neck. And what that suggests to me is that not only is the, the degree of racial bias embedded and structural racism embedded within our culture and within the legal and law enforcement systems, but it also didn't trigger a particularly concerned response by the officers. They seemed rather unconcerned that anyone would have seen this happening in broad daylight as a man's life was being seeped out of him in that encounter. And so there is something very insidious 
about the ways in which black and brown people's lives are considered to have little to no value such that something like that could happen in broad daylight and there be so little concern even about people seeing that it occurred um, as that officer simply stood there with his foot on George Floyd's neck. In the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd and so many others, we now have before the Congress, the George Floyd Act in policing. And this act will go a long way, I think, in addressing some of the concerns about excessive policing in the United States. And so it will require, for instance, that police officers have to use less uh, lethal methods before they adopt things that will likely result in, in death. There also will be requirements of reporting. Um, there's, there are uh, so few statistics as to the incidence of this kind of uh, violence, inter violent encounters with police. And so there needs to be a, a register and a repository of this information so that we have accurate data about encounters with police with other citizens in the United States, particularly where race is implicated within those encounters. Also, it has been very difficult for there to be successful prosecutions when police are charged with violating civil rights or with causing the death of unarmed victims of encounters with them. One of the primary reasons for this has to do with burdens of proof and the way in which the law is structured, such that it typically will be difficult to find that the elements of a homicide offense uh, are met. And also, as a matter of embedded uh, bias, that the police and most police forces are majority white, that the police are generally held to a standard that is lesser than other people in a position where they are accused of homicide offenses. And the, so they get much greater benefit of the doubt for the actions that they take, even in situations where it seems quite apparent that there was no need for lethal force in those incidents. And so that where the officers will assert that it was reasonable for them to take this action because they feared for their lives, the question of the necessity of taking this action is a major question such that the law ought to be reformed to ask the question, not just of reasonableness from the point of view of law enforcement, but also the necessity of taking action that is lethal in nature. And that may change the trajectory of these cases. In addition, the law has recognizes a qualified immunity for law enforcement and, and, and other uh, governmental officials. What this means is that even in cases where the facts may warrant that there be accountability and so conviction, qualified immunity will absolve law enforcement members of that responsibility and so that they will not be held liable for those charges. So the George Floyd Act is something that is important um, and is currently pending before Congress. Another area that is important for us to consider uh, in terms of law reform has to do with voting rights. 
Now, we have just completed a national election that was fraught with issues that harken back to the days when the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was first passed. In fact, Bloody Sunday, March 7th, is upon us, and that was the day in which several hundred marchers protested the denial of voting rights for Black citizens, uh, mostly in the Delta South, but in effect, also in other regions of the United States. But especially in the South, where there was voter suppression and denial of the right to vote. And so the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge by nonviolent protesters led by John Lewis of the late uh, Representative John Lewis and several others in SNCC and throughout the uh, civil rights and local communities to demand these rights where people were met with brutality. They were met with Alabama state troopers on horseback who beat them, beat them viciously with hoses and with whips um, as they asserted their rights to be full-fledged citizens uh, in the United States. And think again about the comments of Fannie Lou Hamer as she was describing her experiences also at being beaten in her attempts to register to vote in Mississippi. And so we have just completed this election and we have seen there that there have been many attempts to also suppress the votes of black people, of brown people. We have seen that, for instance, the locations where uh, voting precincts take place have been moved without notice. We have seen that people have been removed from the voting rolls without any justification or evidence. We've seen any number of efforts such as uh, voter ID laws and other types of impediments to vote. And in spite of all of this, we also saw Black and brown people vote in record numbers. And we especially saw the importance of Black women's vote uh, leading to the outcome uh, in this election and the election of President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. But in spite of all of these things, and perhaps because of them, we have to redouble our efforts to ensure that voting rights, that access to voting and voting rights will be protected in the United States for all people who are eligible to vote. And that means ensuring that the eligibility rules are things that are recognized and expanded, and that efforts to purge people and restrict their ability to vote are not allowed. Now, this comes at a very uh, important time for us right now, also because the Voting Rights Act, which has been watered down um, in recent years by the Supreme Court, especially in the Shelby County case, which eviscerated much of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, now finds itself being challenged again before the U.S. Supreme Court with a challenge to Section 2. Uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act says that there can be no racial discrimination or other bases uh, of discrimination that would, uh, uh, based on people's backgrounds, uh, race, ethnicity, and so forth. Now, this is coming before the Supreme Court, and it's you know it's a it's a it's, it's a very worrisome thing because as the court is currently constituted, there are members of the court who have not been favorably disposed 
opposed to upholding the provisions of the Voting Rights Act. So I think that we need to be concerned about what happens with this challenge to Section 2, because if that occurs, then there will be much more mischief, much more disenfranchisement, and it will have the imprimatur of the Supreme Court to allow those things to happen. Now there, again, there is legislation that is pending before the Congress, the People's Act, which would enhance voting rights, which would provide provisions such as same-day voting, which would ensure that actions that would seek to suppress the votes in certain communities will not be allowed to occur. And so these actions, this legislation um, also is very important. Even as we have just finished one election, we know that these actions must continue to garner our attention because because the election cycle is a continuous one. And in fact, the next elections in the House of Representatives will be in just two years. Uh, and so that everyone needs to be cognizant of the importance of ensuring that there are voting rights and that voting rights are protected. The last area that I want to touch on before engaging in discussion with all of you, and that is the matter of reparations. I mentioned the Tulsa example as one that exemplifies the ways in which Black communities since the era of enslavement, since the Reconstruction era, since Jim Crow, um, the Civil Rights era, and up to the present, have continued to bear the brunt of discrimination, of disenfranchisement, voter suppression uh, in the United States. And so reparations is a call to recognize that our society, our nation, has never fully acknowledged the harms that continue to flow from enslavement. So that those figures that you saw in the video in terms of the incidence of incarceration um, in the United States are uh, vastly disproportionate for people of color. We are just a year into the incidence uh, of the COVID-19 pandemic. And from the start of that pandemic, it has disproportionately affected people in communities of color. We know that voting, we know that employment and education opportunities are also disproportionately affecting uh, communities of color. And so these are things that are not distinct they are not things that stand alone. They are all connected. And so it behooves our society to examine these issues and to create a mechanism for us to address them, indeed to redress them, so that all members of our society begin and continue their lives on equal footing in the United States. Now I'm speaking principally about HR 40, which is the Rape Reparations Act that is currently in Congress. And there's also the uh, uh, corresponding Senate bill that is in Congress as well. Um, H.R. 40 was first introduced by the late Congressman John Conyers when he went to Congress in 1973, and he introduced that bill every year since. And it has been taken up by Congresswoman uh, Sheila Jackson Lee. And essentially what H.R. 40 calls for is that there be something akin to a truth commission that examines 
the effects of the ways in which enslavement continued to have a detrimental effect on the lives of people who were a, a part of that system and the descendants of people whose ancestors um, were enslaved. And for us to not only study that, but to make it the society aware of the uh, effects of enslavement and how they continue in today's age and to rectify those harms. We see, for instance, that in some communities and some business enterprises have begun to take it upon themselves after some protest and prodding by people who have recognized um, uh, the unjust enrichment that they have enjoyed as a result of enslavement. And so some cities uh, some municipalities are looking at uh, reparations um, provisions. Evanston, Illinois is one of them, for instance, and they are instituting uh, reparations uh, laws in Evanston. Georgetown University, Brown University, has looked at these issues and the role of enslavement and how it created unjust enrichment in those institutions and also um, continue to discriminate against people of color who were the descendants of, uh, of enslaved persons. So H.R. 40 is an important mechanism, a legal mechanism, a legislative mechanism for us to be able to delve more deeply, to be forthright about the ways in which enslavement continue to affect our society and disadvantage many people within our society so that we are able to address those issues. I will say just very quickly, on the matter of redlining. And that is, you can see how these issues are connected and how they continue to affect the ways in which people are able to either enjoy the, uh, the benefits and not simply bear the burdens of living in the United States. And redlining is a practice in which, as its name suggests, that it was literally sometimes a red marker that was drawn around Black communities that by government entities that determined whether or not there would be investment in those communities. And that is, that is by public as well as private entities so that mortgages would not be guaranteed if those properties were within the red-lined districts and the property values would not be fairly assessed within those red-lined districts. And so that created the segregation that we continue to experience today. And redlining can have many compound effects and among them have to do with educational institutions, grade schools within red-lined communities, opportunities for employment, opportunities for members of redlined communities to have full-fledged grocery stores as opposed to living in grocery deserts, as is the case in so many black and brown communities. It also affects the environment because what we tend to find is that as a matter of environmental degradation, that in black and brown communities that you have interstate highways, 
that are adjacent to those communities and they have a very negative effect on health. We find that the ways in which health is impacted by the proximity to waste treatment plants also can have a very negative effect on, on people's health and a host of other illnesses that are related to the ways in which we make determinations about who lives in what areas of different cities and what kinds of municipal uh, apparatus is placed in those locations such that they may have a very deleterious impact on the lives of black and brown children and adults. And so redlining has an impact on political participation among those other issues as well. So I wanted to highlight several instances in talking about the ways in which these matters are entrenched within our society and the roles that law has had. But it is also a matter of society more broadly. And so even as lawyers have a responsibility to work towards the equal treatment of all people within our society, this is truly a responsibility of every one of us, no matter where we exist, no matter what circles um, in which we interact, no matter where we work, no matter where we are enjoying whatever aspects um, of this society in which we exist. We all have to make the commitment to be anti-racist. We cannot simply be satisfied with being neutral on these issues of race and implicit bias. We have to make a determined effort so that whatever we are doing, wherever we are interacting and encountering people within our society and the institutions with which we in, in which we belong, that we ensure that those are institutions that have anti-racist policies and practices and not platitudes. We must make sure that there is action associated with our words, and those will be the things that will ultimately make the difference in our entire society. And so I'd like to end with those comments and be able to have an exchange with those of you who would have questions or comments. I thank you for your attention, and I thank you mostly for your interest in this subject matter so that we will together make the changes that are so necessary for our society to move forward for all people in our society. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paula. You have four questions in the, in the Q&A box if you want to um, take a look at those. Okay, so one of the questions is, does qualified immunity play a role as well? If so, are there potential changes being considered that could help limit the scope of that immunity? And yes, the action, the uh, legislation that's currently before Congress under the George Floyd Act would eliminate qualified immunity. And that has been one of the major impediments in terms of holding um, law enforcement members liable. So that is in the legislation and that is something that would be a significant um, help. Another question is, I think, I think reparations are absolutely essential, but unfortunately, the political outlook is challenging. I also believe the business community and individuals would support rep reparations in a material way and could potentially lead on this issue. 
are there any non-governmental corporate or grassroots initiatives to make reparations that we could support financially or otherwise? And I would say that there, you know, as, as I was mentioning, there are different corporate efforts to look at reparations, among them some the banking um, institutions are beginning to explore these areas. We have seen other private corporations who are looking um, into these issues. And as I mentioned, some of the institutions of, you know, some of the colleges and universities are looking at them as well. So some of these are non-governmental entities. And so it will take the public as well as the private sector to work on these issues and those initiatives are beginning to take, you know, to take hold uh, for people to be able to make these changes. I believe many sympathetic white people worry that the issue of reparations is such a hot button, quote unquote, uh, and divisive issue that it may set back the efforts to achieve racial justice in America. How would you respond to that concern? Well, I think it's a hot button issue because we have never really done the work of dealing with the issues of race within our society. And so it is an important issue and it is hot because it continues to have these major uh, effects on the lives of people who are disadvantaged from the continuation of these embedded uh, systems, uh, institutionalized systems of discrimination. And so, you know, you know, there is a point, it seems to me, where we have to be willing to acknowledge what those harms are. So much of the reasons why it, it is, you know, controversial and difficult is because we haven't been willing as a society to have the conversations that are necessary. We haven't really had the conversation about what slavery has meant in this society. We talk about slavery often in a way that, you know, historians often talk in terms of periodization, so that slavery happened during this era, and then there was emancipation, and then there was the Reconstruction era and each subsequent era. But we haven't really grappled with what enslavement meant to the people who were under that system, who were victimized by that system, and how their descendants continue to bear the brunt of discrimination that emanated from that system. And so it may well be a hot button issue, but it is a necessary um, discussion to have. And perhaps if through the cauldron of dealing with this hot button issue, what can emerge is a sense of responsibility, is a sense of a need to address a situation in our society for large segments of our society to who need to be treated as equal citizens, then I think that we have to live up to that challenge. Let's see, I see another question here. I hope I'm answering. What possibilities do you see to put restorative, reparative initiatives in the I-81 community grid options? Well, so this is one of the examples, you know, of the, you know, of where there has been 
governmental policies in terms of establishing segregation throughout the community. In this instance, it's uh, Syracuse. And so the discussion about um, I-81, which is, first of all, which was erected by the removal of a very um, extant and very vibrant Black community and was never, ever fully restored. And so it dispersed the community in ways that affected their political power, affected the community, community relations, and made it much more difficult to be cohesive in that way. And so there was that aspect in terms of the destruction of a of a vibrant Black, uh, thriving Black community. But also a highway that is adjacent to a community that is the largely Black community has the kinds of environmental factors uh, that I was mentioning before. And so I think we can see the imperative to dismantle uh, I-81 as part of a restorative justice initiative so that the people who are living next to a major highway and who have been doing so for decades will no longer have to suffer the kinds of environmental harms and illnesses that come as a result of that. And I think that recognizing the history, recognizing why and how I-81 was first put into place and which neighborhoods and so which communities and which peoples were affected by it is a part of the restorative and reparative justice imperative as I see that. Are there, uh, let's see, other questions. What recommendations do you have in creating anti-racist policies within an organization beyond um, EEO, discrimination, harassment uh, policies, which are more compliance-oriented. You know, as I said, I think that we have to go beyond training policies because clearly training alone doesn't answer the question. Now, I don't know, for instance, you know, precisely what training was involved in Minneapolis, you know, such, you know, for law enforcement members there, such that someone would put their foot on, you know, a man's neck and and, and, and simply allow him to die under your foot. And in other, you know, institutions and organizations where training is there. So clearly something more has to happen. And that has to be the example of actually changing workplace and societal environments in which people begin to see that power sharing and authority actually takes place. You know, we can't simply talk about, I'm sorry, inclusion without including people who have authority in certain positions. And so, you know, the paper on which different policies are written really are not going to mean very much unless the changes, the fundamental changes that we want to see have people in positions that in which they have authority that inhere in those positions. So those are the sorts of things that have to happen. I do believe there need to be constant efforts at making people aware, educational efforts, uh, workshops, discussions such as these, I think. And so for Bonshinnik and King to do this, I think is very important because of the 
you know, the outreach that they have and so many people that they can bring to this kind of discussion. And many other organizations, law firms, legal organizations can do the same thing. We all can do these things wherever we exist and we should do them. We should do them in a collaborative way. So policies, EEO policies are certainly important, but what is going to make the difference is when the demographics of these institutions and these offices change so that we're not simply talking about it, but that we see people in positions of being able to make the changes that we say that are necessary. You know, I like to, I like to make this observation. In the aftermath of George Floyd's death, and there were so many protests, you know, everywhere, nationwide, internationally. You could scarcely go to a neighborhood and not see a Black Lives Matter, you know, banner in a window, in a yard. And all of that is good, right? All of that is good. At, you know, you know, consciousness raising. I think all of that is important. But my question was, as I was, you know, as, as I would see more and more of these posters and these, you know, banners and, you know, uh, you know, in people's yards and windows and so forth is what changed? Why didn't Black Lives Matter before? These things were not new. Maybe George Floyd's death, Breonna Taylor's death, maybe those things were particularly egregious. But these are issues that we have been mentioning for decades and indeed for generations. And so, if this is the moment, if indeed you know we're at a moment of reflection, inflection, if this is a racial reckoning moment, then I think we have to take the steps that show that we are serious about it. And that is going to be reflected in our institutions, in our schools. It's going to be reflected in the ways in which resources are shared in an equitable way. We should not be able to go to one county and see a school, physical plants and resources in one condition and just over the line see a school with its resources in a much better condition because all of our children deserve the optimal opportunities to fulfill their educational promise. We should not stand for that. And that is no matter where we are in the society, no matter what race we are or gender or any factors of our, of our backgrounds, because we say, because we say that education is important for everyone. We say that equal opportunity is important for everyone. And so we have to make those things happen. And I think that we can, and I think that we can do that by going beyond what we put in EEO policies by ensuring that our employment policies and power and authority sharing policies are put into place. Paula, you had a, a question that follows up on that a little bit, um, that excellent answer um, that talks about campus life, because we have a lot of higher ed um, folks watching today. What can campuses do as far as mm. messaging and making sure that students and staff value diversity and inclusion and, and are aware? Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, thank you, Kim. Thanks for pointing that out to me. Yes, I have spent 
a substantial part of my own career working on university campuses, Syracuse University, certainly chief among them, where I've spent the longest amount of time at a university. And I think that the role of universities in society in many ways is second to none in terms of what we ought to be doing to, uh, to enforce the ways in which these matters of inclusion and fairness are embedded within our own institutions. That means that every constituency within the university has a role to play. It is not just a faculty that needs to be aware of these issues so that in any of our interactions with students and with each other are things that are at the forefront. This has to be the responsibility of administrators as well as staff and everyone who is a part of that institutional community. The law enforcement community on the campuses, everyone who has whatever role or participation within that campus's life. And so that means that everyone must see themselves as a part of the anti-racist ethos of that institution. That means that they ought to also be part of the educational and training efforts so that they see that that's a part of their skill base and awareness at the institution. And so at every level, vertically, horizontally, everyone must be made to be aware and be made to be held accountable for the ways in which all members of that institutional community are treated. There are respective and concomitant responsibilities that we all have as educators. And I mean educators in the broadest sense, the very broadest sense that we have responsibilities. We at institutions, educational institutions, are training so many of the people who are going going out to become lawyers and members of the bench and of uh, the legislatures uh, and all of these entities. We are the people who will be on boards of directors and in community organizations. And so if we aren't doing the work while we have those students in our institutions, then they are simply going to replicate these inst uh, inc incidents of implicit bias because they haven't been taught differently. And so we have a tremendous role in change for ourselves, as well as those who come into contact with us as students and staff. Um, Professor Johnson, Paula, I can't thank you enough for this conversation today and for taking the time to be with us for this thought-provoking and important program and reminding us that there's a lot of work to do, but if we do it together, then we can move forward. But we have to first face our past. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kim. And I think that's, that, that, that's exactly it. We cannot address things that we are unwilling to see. And even when those realities are unpleasant. So if we want to get to another place, you know, if we want to live up to the ways in which we describe ourselves, for that to be, you know, for those descriptions to be real, then that means sometimes facing some unpleasant realities so that we are able to be the better nation that we aspire to be. And we can do that 
But this is not easy, but it also isn't insurmountable. I think that we are capable with dedication, with awareness, with knowledge and commitment. We can do those things. We can do them individually. We can do them collectively. We can do them institutionally, but we must do them. Professor Johnson, fantastic. Um, Thank you. It's always a pleasure to work with you. Thank you. Thank you again to Professor Paula Johnson for the thought-provoking and important program. And thank you all for joining us and listening today. A little bit more information on CCJI, the Cold Case Justice Initiative. This is a program at Syracuse University College of Law, which investigates racially motivated murders committed during the civil rights era and in contemporary times. The professors and students who work on the program would value your support. For more information, please visit law.syr.edu and search for CCJI. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Legally Bond. If you are listening and have any questions for me, want to hear from someone from the firm, or have a suggestion for a future topic, please email us at legallybond at bsk.com. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Legally Bond wherever podcasts are downloaded. Bond, Shenick, and King has prepared this communication to present only general information. This is not intended as legal advice, nor should you consider it as such. You should not act or decline to act based upon the contents. While we try to make sure that the information is complete and accurate, laws can change quickly. You should always formally engage a lawyer of your choosing before taking actions which have legal consequences. For information about our communication, firm, practice areas, and attorneys, visit our website, bsk.com. This is attorney advertising.